Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John. Today in our session, we want to talk about what it is that you and I need on a daily basis. These needs correspond, of course, to the three basic parts that we've already discussed concerning our body, our soul, and our spirit. And what I want us to do right now is just to take a look, first of all, at the concept of the need itself. It's our basic needs that drive us, that actually generate motivation within us to do or to say the things that we do or say on a daily basis. And I want us to arrange all of the needs that we have on a hierarchy. I'm borrowing here from another secular psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow, who gave us a hierarchy of needs and the concept that there are certain needs that we have that have to be met first before we can go on to address other needs that we have. All needs being, uh, by definition, important in our lives, that is, for our health and our function, they're all equally as important, but they're arranged on what's called a hierarchy. And I want to demonstrate this hierarchy to you today to show you how it is that our needs are actually arranged in a, se- in a sequence that have to be met in this order. I'm going to use just a simple little diagram that illustrates our basic needs and summarize these needs on this hierarchy, or you could call it a stepladder if you prefer, with the most basic needs being at the very bottom, the foundation of this stepladder or hierarchy is the most basic needs that we have. These I correspond with or to our need for physical integrity, or we could summarize it with one word, and that word is health. The need to be healthy. There are some fancy terms we could use for this, such as physiological homeostasis, which just simply means that we have a need to breathe about somewhere around 24 times a minute. We have a need to have our heart beating about 72 times a minute. We have a need for our our electrochemical balances in the bloodstream to be all on an even keel. And all of this means we are healthy, provided there is no injury or any kind of disease process going on in us physically, we experience health. Now, when those needs are threatened in any way, that is, if we are choking, for instance, on on some food and can't get enough air, we go into a panic, obviously, because we need air. We need to breathe. These needs include our needs for water, for food, as well as for air, but also, just generally speaking, a need to be healthy, to be uh, not diseased in any way or injured in any way. Now, these needs are the most basic because, obviously, unless the needs for health are met, we can't really go on to address any other needs. For instance, the next level of needs that we have beyond health, I'm going to summarize again with one 
word that corresponds to our personality or what we've called the soul, that word is work. These are our personal needs. The need to be worthy is a personal need that every one of us have. I'll define this a little clearer for you in, in a few moments, but right now I want us to recognize that just as we have physical needs, we have personal needs as well, because we're not just a physical being, we're also a personal being. And so we have needs that correspond with that. Now to illustrate the hierarchy concept again, notice that if you were in a restaurant eating a meal and suddenly you had some food lodged in your throat and you began to choke gasping for air, you're not really going to concern yourself at that moment with whether you are personally worthwhile or not because you're going to be personally dead in about four minutes unless you get some air. You see, these physical needs take precedence over our personal needs, but that in no wise detracts from the, the intensity of the personal needs or the necessity that we feel to have these needs met in us. Now, if, if our personal needs are met, that is, if we have a sense of worth as persons, then we can go on to address yet another level of needs, and that's our spiritual needs. Remember, we're not only a body and soul, but we're also a spirit. And as a spirit being, we also have spiritual needs. I'm going to use another phrase to describe these spiritual needs, to lump them all together, just like we've used the term health and worth. I'm going to use the phrase love, only I'm going to make it in a prepositional form, so I'm going to write down to love, meaning to love others like Christ is our greatest spiritual need. Now I'm going to need to make a distinction with you here between being loved, which we'll see in a moment satisfies your personal needs, and loving others. There's a big difference between the need to be loved, to receive love, and the need to give love. Big difference between those two. On our chart here, on our hierarchy, we're talking about the difference between a personal need and a spiritual need. Now, the concept of the hierarchy itself is really what we're trying to keep in mind here because so often we make serious mistakes when it comes to uh, this hierarchy and when it comes to uh, understanding our needs. We make the most serious and most common mistake is to think that we only have one set of needs, that we only have a need for physical integrity or a need for health. Let me give you a couple illustrations of what I'm talking about here. Frequently it happens that I talk with husbands and wives in marriage counseling type of situations or with parents uh, of, of children and in, when, invariably when we come around to needs, we're talking about uh, their physical needs. Whenever you outline any given situation between a husband and wife or whenever you uh, describe a particular problem between parents and children, invariably you come up with situations and circumstances that primarily have to do with the physical realm, such as not having enough money, not having enough time, uh, the fact that we spend our money in certain ways. And this causes family conflict and that sort of thing. But what's really uh, needed at that point is an understanding that we're more than just physical beings with physical issues that have to be dealt with. We're personal beings with personal issues. And this is really what drives our conflict. So, let me give you an illustration of this. Let's take Dad, who's out working all day long. He's going out, working hard. 
He's in a competitive workplace of some sort. There's a lot of pressure on him all the time. This could be business pressure or it could be just performance, job performance type of pressure. But he's doing his best to make enough money to pay for the rent, to pay uh, the grocery bill, to uh, drive a car, and to meet all the, quote, needs of his family. Now, when Dad brings home the paycheck, and he comes home tired, feeling exhausted, and um, among other things, he feels like he's done his job. After all, he has provided for his family. And if you were to ask that man, do you feel like you're meeting your family's needs? He would say, I sure do, especially since I took this second job so I could make enough money so they could not only have the necessities of life here, but we could have a vacation, we could go on and enjoy ourselves, we could buy a new vehicle, and so on. He says, I'm meeting my family's needs. You see, Dad at that point is addressing only one-third of his family's needs. He's only dealing with the physical aspect of his family and their physical needs. And frequently, he'll kick back and he'll relax and he'll say, there, I've done my job. And he'll demand that the family actually minister to his needs by loving him and respecting him. So he'll provide their needs and actually solicit their love and respect for what he's done to provide their needs. Now, the problem with this is, besides the fact they don't know about the hierarchy, the problem is it doesn't work. Because what dad has overlooked in that scenario is that the individuals in his family have personal needs as well. I've been amazed since I've been teaching Alpha how ignorant people are concerning personal needs, myself included. I started out not really understanding the necessity of these personal needs. And I, I used to think that you know, as long as they're healthy and they weren't abusing their family and as long as there was enough money to provide the basics of life, that the family ought to be satisfied. And I was somewhat appalled when, when dads would express to me that their family didn't love them and respect them enough. And I was kind of on his side, to tell you the truth, a little male bias there. But then I began to realize that what dad was doing was leaving a very important part of their need structure out of his mind altogether. He was not looking at their own, at their personal needs. And as I explore that, I would frequently now ask a fellow in a counseling session, I'd ask, what are your personal needs? And every time I ask a question like that, I get this blank stare. I get this look at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't got any idea of what personal needs are. What do you mean by personal? You mean money? You mean physical things like health or what? I said, no, your personal needs. What are your personal needs? And I'm amazed at how many folks don't realize that they have a set of personal needs. So we're going to expand on that in a little bit, but notice the mistake I'm pointing out. Dad made a very serious mistake here. He actually met the health needs of his family, but then he jumped immediately over to demand from them that they actually love him. Now, the problem with this is that while the family was healthy, while they had plenty of food on the table, the bills were being paid, they lived in a house that was uh, livable and comfortable, they were not able to love and respect that. Because you see, in order for them to meet their needs of love, to love and respect another, they have to first of all know that they're worthy. And this is what dad and the families frequently overlook. 
They overlook the fact that they have a set of personal needs that we're identifying here by this one term, worth, that have to be met before we can go on to love others. Let me give you another example of this in terms of the church. Being a pastor for a number of years, I operated on the same basic mentality as what I just described from the typical family situation. And I would come into a congregation like this and I would see that everybody is breathing. Everybody it seems to be healthy. Nobody's sick and passing out and falling out on the floor. Nobody is bleeding anywhere. So I would make this assumption in my mind that all needs are met in that family system. I would assume that everybody had their needs met within that church congregation. And so assuming that because they're physically healthy and physically present that their needs are met, I would go on to exhort these very people whose needs I thought were met to go out and to love each other like Christ and to love one another like Jesus commanded us to do. And then I became very upset because I noticed the harder I told people to love one another, the less they did it. As a matter of fact, the more I harped on it, the more I saw the opposite take place. And I became very disheartened as a pastor early on because the one thing that uh, yet continues to, to irritate me more than anything else is when I see two brothers and sisters in Christ fighting with each other, those interpersonal relationships breaking down. Now, part of that is my own codependency, you understand, but part of it is a genuine burden <clears throat> from the Spirit as well. Now, the problem is this, and I didn't understand this, that these folks, even though they were healthy physically, were not, if you'll pardon the mix up here, healthy personally. They were not viewing themselves as being worthy personally and so were not in fact capable of going on to love other people. Naturally we think that loving other people is almost automatic. It's almost, um, well sure I, I can love you, but really the way we're defining it here, loving other people is really supernatural. It's not automatic at all. And it demands that we ourselves know that our own personal needs are met before we can go on to love others. I get frustrated as a pastor because I'd see people who weren't loving one another. And the more I harped on them loving one another, the more they wouldn't. And guess what I quit doing? That's right. I quit loving the people that I was telling to love other people. And then I get all beside myself because my personal needs were not being met because they weren't behaving the way I thought they ought to behave to make me look and feel good and therefore I would get all confused and in in, enmeshed in the whole system and before you know it you've got a whole not only dysfunctional family system at home but then you've got a dysfunctional church system as well. Where does all that come from? It comes from a failure to recognize this need hierarchy that I'm putting on the board for you. It comes from a failure to recognize that even though physical needs are met, it's impossible to, for you to actually uh, love other people like Christ, meet those spiritual needs until the personal needs have been met. I think it's important at this time for us to take a moment or two to describe what we mean exactly by personal needs. What are we talking about when we talk about personal needs? I want to take off the side of this this one issue of worth here 
and define this in terms that we'll use consistently throughout the class. So if you want to jot these down, you can. For those who are on, on video, you take some time at this point to actually write down these personal needs and make sure that you go over them in group, make sure that you can memorize them because we're going to be talking a lot about these personal needs all the way through the rest of the series and it's going to be important that you have a working knowledge of what these needs are in order for you to make sense out of the rest of the, the class here. So the first thing we want to consider is that there's two sides to this personal needs that we have. The first side is security. Security, by security I'm talking about being personally secure, which means that we know that we are loved, that we're accepted, and that we're forgiven, just like we are. Let's, let's go over that again so we make sure we have an understanding of it. In order for us to be secure as a person, to feel secure and to know we're secure, to have a sense of security as a person, we've got to know, first of all, that we're loved unconditionally. That means just like we are. It's not based on our performance now. It's not based on us behaving ourselves. It's not based on us not doing anything wrong. But to be loved unconditionally means we're loved just like we are. We need to know that we're loved like that in order for us to feel secure. Likewise, we need to know that we are accepted just like we are. Totally accepted. And that we are, in fact, acceptable. You see, we cannot really have a genuine sense of security when we're all the time worried about people rejecting us. People might not accept us. And in order for us to know that we're secure, we have to know that we are accepted. And likewise, we've got to know that we are forgiven. Because we know the longer we live, the more mistakes we make, the more sins and transgressions enter into our life, we've got to know that we are forgiven for that which we ourselves recognize as being wrong. When you lump all these three together, love, acceptance, and forgiveness, you have what I'm defining here as a sense of security as a person. But that's only one half of this worth coin, you could say. Let me put this other half on this side. In order to know that we are secure, we've got to know we're loved, accepted, and forgiven. But in order to know we are, we are significant, which is the other half, We've got to know that we're important, our life has meaning and purpose to it, and that we're adequate or able to do what's necessary. So we need to know that we are significant. That word is significant, by the way, in case you were wondering what that means. We need to know we are significant just as much as we need to know we're secure on a daily basis. And the way we know we're significant as persons is we know, number one, we're important. Our life counts. In a computer age, with all the technology here, we've been reduced somewhat to a number. And by existential philosophy influencing our educational system, we have all been sold, in one way or another, a cultural bill of goods that says, we don't know where we came from, we don't know why we're here, and we certainly don't know where we're going. This means we are insignificant. It means that we are some sort of cosmic accident. You see, we can't live like that. We cannot live without a sense of meaning and purpose in our life. And so we've got to know that we count, that our life has meaning and purpose to it, that we're important, and finally, we've got to know that we're adequate, able to do what we're called upon to do. 
on a daily basis. Now, together, this security that we get when we're loved, accepted, and forgiven, and the significance that we get when we're important, our life has meaning and purpose to it, and we're adequate, makes up what we're defining here <coughs> in our chart as personal worth. In other words, we come to, to understand that we are, in fact, worthy. Now, I've tried to avoid talking about feeling worthy here for this reason. As we're going to be seeing later on in our study, it's possible for you to be absolutely worthy, but not feel worthy. It's possible for you to be absolutely secure, but not feel secure. So I'm not really talking here, when, I'm, when I mention this need that we have to be worthy, I'm not talking about whether or not we are secure and significant. In fact, I'm talking about, or whether we feel that rather, I'm talking about the fact that we are indeed secure and significant. And I'll illustrate this more to you as we go along. Now, let's go back to the two examples I was using before, just to, to kind of capsulize what we're studying so far, that the father who comes home and he's provided enough money to ensure the physical well-being of his house. That is, he's brought home enough money to give them food and to make sure they're healthy. This father, unless he recognizes that we have this need for security, or his family has this need for security, and his family has this need for significance, is not going to see his job as anything more than just a provider of physical things. What happens to dads when they get in that situation is they start seeing themselves as a paycheck. They start seeing themselves as the one who brings home the money and that makes everybody happy so if they quit bringing home money they're not going to be worthy and they start identifying themselves as just a provider on a physical level and the second thing that happens to dads when they when they fail to recognize personal needs in their families is that when they see themselves as just being a provider of that nature they have a tendency to get lazy because when you go out and you work eight hours a day or nine or ten hours a day and you come home and you're tired and you've been working out there in the world, you want to kick back and relax a little bit. And when you kick back and relax a little bit, you want everybody around you to understand that it's now your time to kick back. You're off work. Your job is done. But nothing could be further from the truth. You see, God has not charged us dads with the responsibility of just making money. He has charged us with the responsibility of ministering to the other needs of our family. Now, ladies, the same thing can apply for you as well. And I realize, especially in today's society, in our society, women are out working as much as men are. But you ever notice how there's a, there's a double standard here? Even though the women go to work out there and they come home, they still have to do the dishes and cook the meals and clean up and take care of the kids. <laughs> you all know how that works, don't you? If you don't, don't tell my wife about that now. <clears throat> there's a double standard in that sense but the, the same pitfall will happen to a woman who goes out and works and thinks that she's done her family's service by just providing for the physical needs because you see the problem is we're not recognizing at a deep personal level what each one of us needs and that's this need for worth as a person now we're going to focus our attention a little more on that but remember again to be worthy means we know we're secure we're loved, accepted, and forgiven, and we know that we are significant. 
that we have meaning and purpose, that we're important, and that we are adequate. If you'll keep those six basic needs, personal needs in mind, then you'll be able to see situations in your life and the lives of others in a radically different way. Now, once these worth needs are met, we can then move on to address our spiritual need to love others. The only way possible for me to actually love another person like Christ, whether it's my wife or my daughter or any of you folks, the only way possible for me to love another person like Christ is to know that my needs are met first. Unless I know my needs are met, I can't really even think about another person or concern myself with another person's welfare because I'm going to be too busy thinking about myself. Now, in order for me to do that, to know that my needs are met, I'm going to have to recognize, first of all, that I have these needs. I have the need for security on a daily basis. I have a need for significance on a daily basis. Probably one of the most difficult problems we're facing today is people don't realize that they even have a need. If you don't realize you have a need, you're not going to be motivated to get that need met. So the first thing we have to do is come to grips with the fact and recognize that we do have these personal needs. And these personal needs have to be met every single day. Now, it's important for us to understand when we go through this that the need that we have on a personal basis is just as driving in our life as the need for food. You see, you can't eat enough today to last you tomorrow, can you? I mean, you think you do, but how many of you ever pigged out on a Thanksgiving dinner and swore you'd never eat again? By that night, by 5 o'clock, you're eating again. Hmm? You're dragging out the pie or whatever, right? You can't eat enough to last you. You're going to get hungry again. You can't breathe enough this afternoon to last you tomorrow, can you? These needs have to be met on a physical basis. The needs have to be met on a daily basis, minute by minute, on a daily basis. So is it with the personal needs we have. We not only need a sense of worth today, but we need a sense of worth tomorrow as well. We not only need to know that we are secure today, but we're secure tomorrow. We're significant today, we're significant tomorrow. So keep in mind that these personal needs are something that are always with us. They're not, they don't just go away. They continually impinge upon us. And it's only when we can get these needs met that we are able to be free to love other people. Only when we know that we are secure and significant, are we are worthy that we can actually go on to love others. Now, it's to that that I want to turn our attention to in John chapter 6 with a familiar story to most people concerning Jesus feeding the multitude. In John chapter 6, we have an unusual story here that I want to take the time to share with you that illustrates what I've been talking about, about our needs. I'm going to break into the context a little bit with you in verse 5 and just give you the background here. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company coming to him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, it's important, I think, that you know what that great company was. That great company was 5,000 men, not counting their wives and kids. Throw in a few wives and kids, and you're going to be talking about upwards of 15,000 people. Now, what if you knew you had 15,000 people coming to your house for lunch tomorrow? <laughs> you wouldn't be asking, where are we going to buy enough bread? 
you'd be asking, what am I going to buy that bread with, right? His disciples had the same kind of reaction. I want you to notice this. Verse 6, he explains that Jesus said this to prove Philip. In other words, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. In other words, what he's saying here is $45,000 would not be enough for everybody to have a kid's meal. Now, this is a very serious matter, but I think Philip was a little lighthearted about this because if you read on, the other disciples kind of picked up on this. In verse 8, he says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, Here's a kid, here's a lad, which has five barley loaves and two small fishes. This is the original kid's meal, by the way. Here's a lad with five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? In other words, they were kind of, I think, in a sarcastic way saying, okay, here's the kid's lunch, and probably Andrew's saying, this is enough for me and the boy, but the rest, what are the rest of you going to eat? Well, what Jesus is getting ready to do is illustrate what we've been talking about in this hierarchy. Because here you've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 15,000 hungry people with needs that have to be met. And you've got 12 disciples that don't have any idea how to meet those needs at all. Now, what I want you to see is Jesus kind of put all the, all the, um, the chuckling and all of the sarcastic remarks and all the humor to silence when he said in verse 10, make the men sit down. In other words, he was serious now. And his disciples knew he was serious. Now, remember, the men he's talking about here are, are the 5,000 men, not counting their, their wives and kids is make the men to sit down. And I think that explains why John in his, his gospel here gives us this next phrase, which seems almost out of context. I mean, it seems, seems like it shouldn't even belong here, but read it anyhow with me. In verse 10 it says, Now there was much grass in the place. Now what does that sentence have to do with anything? There was much grass in the place. I think that was the only way that those disciples got those men to sit down is the fact that there was much grass in that place and they were tired of standing. And John, being there, of course, I think could recollect that what it was they used to get the people to sit down. But they did. They got, they got the men to start sitting down. And by the way, here's an excellent little thing for crowd control, if, in case you ever want anybody, if, in case you ever have to seat 15,000 people, okay? Here's, here's an excellent little uh, crowd control technique. Jesus, when he took the loaves, and, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down. In other words, the only ones they fed were the ones that were sitting. Now, when hungry people are standing around and they see people sitting getting fed, guess what they're going to do? They're going to sit too. Here's the spiritual significance and practical significance of what I'm talking about here now, is that Jesus is the one who is concerned with meeting these needs. Now obviously we're talking about feeding 5,000 people, we're talking about the health needs here, aren't we? We're talking about their food that they need. And he's concerned about that. He's going to go on to address something that's far more important than even their health needs. We'll get to that in a moment. But he's concerned about feeding them lunch here. He's concerned that they're hungry. He's concerned that they're a great way away from the city, out in the hill, hillsides of Galilee. And he's concerned about giving them what they need. However, what he's going to illustrate with this 
by telling his disciples to feed them is what he can do in the personal realm as well to meet our needs. And we'll get to that here in a moment. But the significant thing is that people who sat in the presence of Jesus had their needs met. Now we're going to be trying to, to come to grips with this thing all day today and in the rest of our sessions. We're going to be trying to come to grips with the fact that Jesus actually cares about our needs. He actually wants to meet our needs in a most relevant way. But before we do, let's go on to look at the story. They, they distributed to all the people the food that Jesus miraculously provided by his own creative powers. He miraculously provided enough food from that one boy's little lunch to feed 5,000 men plus their families. And afterwards, Jesus was efficient with this when he said in verse 12, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. And when they had gathered up everything that was left over, they gathered 12 baskets. Now frequently I'll ask classes, why 12 baskets? Why 12? And the immediate answer is because there were 12 men who were serving. And each one of those men who took the time to minister to the needs of the people sitting walked away with a basket full themselves. Now going back to the people, the King James classically understates this. When they began to eat, they ate, according to the King James, as much as they would, which is polite King James English for the fact that they pigged out. What do you do on a free lunch? Hmm? If you've got a free lunch, smorgasbord set out before you, you're going to eat as much as you would. And I'm quite sure they're just like us. They probably stashed a little in their robes to take home for the family a little later. But Jesus supplied all of their needs. I mean, abundantly supplied their needs. And when they gathered over, what, gathered up what was left over, they still had 12 baskets full, one for each of his disciples that he used in ministering. Now, this is a tremendous object lesson, but unfortunately it was lost on the people that Jesus gave this lesson to. Because you see, what he did was meet their physical needs, the very basic thing, to illustrate what he could do for their personal needs, but they weren't following him. Later on, you read in the same context that Jesus sent his disciples away in the boat. He himself went up into a mountain to pray. And if you read the context carefully in this chapter, you'll find that the reason he went up into the mountain to pray was because the people he just fed wanted to make him king. They decided anybody that can feed us lunch miraculously like that needs to be our president. Isn't that what our country desires more than anything else? People to feed us, leaders that will assure plenty and prosperity and that sort of thing? Well, they, they did the same thing in Jesus' day, but Jesus excused himself, went up into the mountain to be with the Father alone. That night he came back, met his disciples on the troubled sea, performed another miraculous event and, and saving them and making them secure out of that storm, and they went on to Capernaum the next day. I want to break into the context a little bit with you in John chapter 6. If you want to drop down uh, with me in the context, you come down to verse 25. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, that's the same multitude now that he had just fed the day before, they came back for lunch again. And when they had found him the other day, on the other side, the next day, on the other side of the sea, they came to him and said and asked him, Rabbi or teacher, How'd you get here? When did you come here? And notice Jesus' answer now. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except, or you seek me not, rather, 
because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Now, I need to make this point as emphatically as I can, because there are too many people today who are seeking a relationship with God, who are seeking Jesus because he meets their physical needs. Now, before we get too hard on these people, well, let's just take a moment and reflect on our prayer requests. If you reflect on what prayer requests you have, you go back and, and take a little history of your prayer request, ask yourself, how many of my prayer requests concern the physical things of life? How much money I've got? What kind of job I'm going to get? What kind of house I live in? What kind of condition my body's in? Health issues. You hear a lot of prayer requests about that. Does this mean that Jesus is not concerned about that? No, not at all. He is concerned. He is a healer. And he is concerned with meeting our physical needs. As a matter of fact, it's by his power that we are able to walk around and breathe and, and move and our heart keeps beating and so on. But you see, he's not just concerned about the physical needs. That's only one-third of your needs as a person. He's concerned about the other two-thirds as well. He's concerned about your personal needs and your spiritual needs to love others. And this is what Jesus was concerned with when he said, you're not seeking me now because you saw the miracle. I mean, you could say, well, yeah, they saw the miracle. They ate the miracle yesterday. They ate that miraculous lunch. But he's saying, no, that's not what you're after. You've missed the whole point. You see me as your physical savior. And that's all. But I want to be your personal savior. I want to save you on a personal level as well as your physical savior. You see, a lot of us trust Jesus to start with. I think probably most all of us trust Jesus as our physical savior only. And we pray for him to do things that affect our physical lives constantly. And sometimes we'll even jump to trust him as our spiritual savior. You know what I mean? Fire insurance what I'm talking about. Trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and you won't have to go to hell. Okay, we'll trust him as our spiritual Savior. But you see, he really wants to be your personal Savior. Now keep those personal needs in mind. What, he's, what I'm saying here is that Jesus wants to meet those personal needs that you have. He wants to meet the need for love and acceptance and forgiveness that you have. He wants to meet the need for security and significance in you on a daily basis. That's what his heart's desire is, is to be a personal savior to each one of us. But you see, what we're interested in most of the time is being saved physically. No, 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 God, I don't need worth. What I need is money. I don't need any more um, security or significance here. That's not, I don't need to talk about that. What I need is to get over this illness that I've got. Paul prayed like that one time. Did you know that? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, or chapter 12, rather. Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh. This was not a, pain, a mortal wound, but it was a painful thing, whatever it was. Some people suppose it was an eye problem. And he prayed three times that the Lord would take that away from him. Lord, you're my physical Savior. Now take this away. You can heal the blind. I've seen you heal the blind. Take it away. Remember what God's answer was to him? I like the way it's written in the Greek because he is honest with us. He says, the Lord had been saying unto me, 
which means God had answered him all along, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. God wasn't going to be his physical savior in that respect, but he was going to be his personal savior, and he was trying to get Paul's eyes off the physical and onto the personal. Jesus is doing the same thing here with this multitude, but notice the reaction of the multitude. They didn't like it. We don't like this. This is not a pleasant doctrine to talk about the fact that God is not just our physical savior. He's also our personal, and sometimes he's more concerned with our personal well-being than he is our physical. They didn't like it, but notice what he said in verse 27, Labor not for the food which perishes, but for that meat or food which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give you, for him hath God the Father sealed. What Jesus was trying to do was to peel these folks off the physical realm and put them on the personal realm. He was trying to get them to look past their physical needs for a moment and to see and recognize their personal needs. He was trying to get them to understand that what they need to be concerned about more than what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear is who God has made them to be in terms of their union with Christ so they can be secure as persons and they can be significant as persons so they can go on to minister love to other people. Now, notice how they fought him on this. Verse 28, Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? They said basically, Okay, all right, we understand. Nobody gets a free lunch. You want us to work, right? All right, we'll work. You tell us what to do, and we'll work. Because Jesus had just said, Labor not for the food that perishes. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. I want you to let this soak in for a moment. He's saying, this is the work of God, that you believe on him who he has sent. You see, what God is calling us to is faith. Above everything else, he's calling us to faith in him and what he's provided for us in Christ. This is work. If you've ever tried to walk by faith for any length of time, you understand that it is indeed work because it's not natural. We want to walk naturally by sight, concerned with the physical realm. But he's called us to believe on Jesus. Of course, they fought with him on that count. He said in verse 30, they said therefore unto him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What do you work? Now, I've got to share this with you. I've, this is something that just never ceases to amaze me, not in other people. I'm getting used to this happening in other people. But what amazes me is how much it happens in myself. Here it is. God has just performed a most miraculous thing in front of 15,000 people. He fed them lunch miraculously out of a little boy's kid's meal. And the very next day, they're asking for a sign. The very next day, the same people that ate the sign the day before are now saying, show us a sign that you're real. How many of you have had that happen to you? You know what I'm talking about? God does a miraculous thing in your life. He just saves you miraculously, and then you turn right around and say, I wonder if God's going to do that again. Show me a sign, God, so I can trust you. This is why I believe the psalmist wrote so many psalms recounting what God had done for Israel over and over and over again to remind us so, so quickly we forget. 
And they said, show us a sign that we can believe you. Actually, they were just beginning a temptation, and, and I don't have time right now to go through all of these issues with you that they're fighting over, but basically they try to use the scripture on Jesus here. Now they get real religious here. At this point, they get so religious, they're going to use the Bible on Jesus. They saw Jesus and his refusal to actually feed them lunch again as an affront to them. And so they got the scriptures out and they said, now you remember Moses, how God fed the children of Israel every single day with manna from heaven. That's the sign we want you to show us. You feed us lunch every single day and then we'll believe on you. Jesus began a series of arguments which led down to this radical statement. And I want us to consider this down towards the end of the chapter. After telling them, I am the bread of life, in verse 48, he said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness every day. They got a miraculous free lunch every day, but they died in the wilderness. See, Jesus could feed us a miraculous free lunch every day, but sooner or later we're going to die. He could keep raising us up from the dead like he did Lazarus, and then we'd have to die again. He could actually heal every one of our ailments, and then we'd have to get sick again. You see, if that's all there is, the physical, temporal world we live in is all there is, then Jesus is a terrible Savior, isn't he? Because we keep getting sick again. We keep having problems again. We keep dying. Jesus went on to say, though, I am the bread of life, and whoever eats this, this bread, meaning himself, if any man shall eat of this bread, verse 51, he shall live forever. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, at this point, these Jews who are very picky about what they eat, I mean real picky about what they eat, these Jews actually began to gag a little bit because they thought, here's their mentality again, they thought he was talking about the physical realm. Here Jesus was talking about the personal realm, and they thought he was talking about the physical realm. So they thought he was talking about cannibalism. Eat my flesh, they said. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they said. Jesus then, following being on the roll that he was on, in verse 53, he said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Not just eat his flesh, but drink his blood, you have no life in you. And of course, if you stay on the physical level, that'll just literally gag us. But what he's talking about is the most marvelous thing. He is talking about the fact that when we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we receive him in on a personal level. We become one with him. You all are familiar, I'm sure, with the old saying, you are what you eat. And when you eat the flesh of Jesus and you drink his blood in on a personal basis through faith, you become one with Jesus. He is in you and you are in him so that what's true of Jesus is true of you. Now, we're going to be talking a lot in this series about what it means to eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood. We're going to be talking about what that means to us personally, how we do that through the exercise of faith. But I want you to notice the response here as we close this session. I want you to, to recognize the response in the, in the minds of these folks because we'll, we'll have this same kind of response. He says in verse 60 that many, therefore, of his disciples, 
when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? In other words, many of his disciples didn't understand, number one, that they had personal needs, and number two, that Jesus could meet those personal needs when they came in union with him. And this is the thing that each one of us have got to come to grips with. When we consider our needs, we've got to consider how it is that God has promised to meet those needs in us in our relationship to his son, Jesus Christ. This is the very heart of the gospel, I refer to it as. The very heart of the good news is the promise that God gives us that we, because of our union with Christ, because we've eaten his flesh and drank his blood by faith, we've received him, he is in us, we're in him. Because of that, he makes us worthy. That is, he makes us secure, loved unconditionally, accepted, forgiven. He makes us significant. He gives our life new meaning and purpose. He makes us important as his heir of the kingdom. And he makes us adequate through the power of his spirit. It is by virtue of our union with Christ, by virtue of our relationship in him, that we become worthy, that we are, in fact, worthy. Now, when we understand this, even though it's a hard statement, like they said here, this is a hard saying, who can hear this? But when we understand this, when the Holy Spirit clicks this little light bulb on in our minds and we can actually believe that we're worthy, it sets us free, free to actually love another person. Why? Because these personal needs are met. The personal needs for worth are satisfied, freeing us up then to go on to love one another like Christ. You see, this was what Jesus' ministry was all about from start to finish. He was concerned to reveal to us, to those who are in need, how he meets our needs. Now, typically, all of us are conditioned in just the opposite way, to look to everything and everyone except Jesus to meet those needs, to look everywhere else except to Jesus to make ourselves secure and significant. We're going to be looking at this as part of the difficulty we have uh, later on in, in another lesson, we're going to be looking at, at this as the difficulty we have in actually believing God. Remember what he said here to the Jews. This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. What he's concerned with is that you and I learn to trust Jesus with our needs, that you and I learn to trust what he's done for us we couldn't do for ourselves to make us worthy. When we understand that, when we learn that, we'll be free to love one another, free to love our families, free to love the people we work with, free to actually be Christ to others. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 